Happy New Year and welcome to the first episode of The Pink Podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Nelkin, and I'm so glad you're coming on this cultural journey with us. With two episodes every month, we're going to be having some amazing conversations about issues affecting the arts today, forthcoming projects from amazing people, and even just memories of engaging with the arts for the very first time. For this first episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Sophie Beringer and Sanjit Tudor, both incredible voices in the arts who I've worked with in varying roles over the years. As both an in-house and independent producer, Sophie champions new and exciting work from all backgrounds. She works as a producer with her company's Metal Rabbit Productions and Wound Up Theatre, and as an executive producer and acting chief executive at the King's Head Theatre, which has just opened the doors to its brand new venue, so a very exciting time for her. Sanjit has just closed the door on a phenomenal tenure at the Museum of the Home, where he was director of audiences. Prior to that, Sanjit led the rebranding and comms at Talawa Theatre Company, where he ensured audience development and digital strategies were always at the heart of Talawa's work. So, let's kick off. In both your work, you've both often focused on using culture, I think, to make a difference in society. So can I ask, what do you think is the place for culture for making change and provoking discussion? Sanjit, do you want to kick us off? That's a big, a big question. one. Start. It, is a big, it is a big one. Gosh, you're really not sparing the horses, are no, you? Yeah, um, so I think there's something about culture and particularly the move towards co-creation in making work with communities rather than imposing a creative vision from, say, an artistic director or director of a play or indeed a well-established script. And I think that act of devising work and co-creating work with communities allows for conversations. It allows for communities and the individuals within those communities to claim some ground for themselves. It allows themes to emerge which perhaps wouldn't ordinarily. And I think in that sense, it enriches the lifeblood of the nation, quite frankly. I mean, it's hugely important. Massively important. Quite apart from sort of obviously, you know, things like health and well-being and all those other elements that come into it and that desire that people have to express themselves and be heard. And I think culture is the place for that. Sophie, would you agree about using culture to provoke those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the sort of the participatory and community like focus that we can see as like a, on a cultural policy throughout the nation is definitely pushing that exactly what you're saying right now. And we have to respond to that and the needs of society and the needs of the world as a result of that and, and, and of policy. And, and I think that it will take a while for artists to really figure out what their place is within that as a facilitator, as a sort of middle man of those conversations as well. And I'm really excited to see how the definition of of being an artist sort of transforms itself because of that. But I entirely agree with what you're saying. I think that we're in a really exciting change and primarily around what you're what you're talking about there in terms of the relationship that culture and arts has with its community and with devising work and without being a sort of up-down approach to creating work and, and much more linear and, and inclusive. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think there's also, you know, we're still living with the effects of the pandemic and that sense of enforced, contained closure. Projects had to be stopped halfway through. Artists, particularly creatives, suffered all manner of income loss, which was really rough for a lot of people. Uh, Many people haven't returned to theatre or to, to arts and culture more generally. It was a rough time. And I think there's something about 
co-creation that allows people that space to reinvent themselves after something as traumatic as a pandemic as well. It's, a, it's almost like a healing or cathartic process. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think also kind of having a voice and sort of considering sort of where power structure lies mm. within that is very important to a lot of people. I think that people valuing life and their work in a totally different way coming out of the pandemic and realising that work isn't just, you know, and therefore the creation of art themselves as artists and as people who are working, the creation of art, you know, it shouldn't be as transactional as, as what it would, would mm. as, as what it was, that actually the world can be ripped up from underneath you at any moment, like what we experienced. And as a result of that, I think people are valuing things in a very, very, very different way very from what so. we were before the pandemic. So you're totally right. And within that idea of co-creation about getting rid of sort of some of the hierarchical relationships between producer, writer, director, you know, performer, um, I think is a real shift that we're seeing at the moment of all of those artists be having having an equal an equal say in the creation of their work and what that means. So yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's because of the pandemic as well. I think you just touched on something really interesting, which is when you said that people are valuing things in different ways. Mm. And people, I think, have a different desire from when they go out to any art space and they consume culture differently. So what is it that you think people want when they come to the theatre or they go to an art space? Sort of what's the pandemic changed with that? Wow. Um, two thoughts come to mind. I think there's a real desire to be entertained. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, I think there's also a real desire to somehow be involved in something. And we're seeing that with the karaoke musicals. We're seeing that with the adaptations of films, you know, hitting particularly West End stages um, and others. And that's also supported by a lot of larger theatre companies or larger theatre buildings, I should say, having that drive to make money as well. You know, having sat there dark for 18 months was rough for a lot of people because you still had to maintain the buildings. So now there's that real drive to make money. So I think it's those two things intersect in my mind. One, audiences seeking familiarity. These are stories they know. The tunes are probably likely to be familiar or certainly things they can hum along to and sing along to. It makes it a family day out or a day out with a group of friends. So that sense of rebuilding links with people that perhaps you'd lost through the pandemic is also a driver, in my mind. I mean, I could be com mm. completely sort of on a completely different sort of trip no, to I else, No, I think, I think you're completely right. And, and, and just to add to that, I do think we have to revisit all of this sort of status quo and the rules of how we put on work as well. And I think that the National Theatre coming out and changing its performance times is a really good example yeah. of that. You know, we started doing that at the King's Head over a year ago and I'm not taking credit for it at all but you know six we've we've done Saturday Saturday Sunday 6 p.m. performances for the sort of which would traditionally be the 7:30 p.m. slot now for a year and and what that enables us to do especially in a like a location like Upper Street in Islington is people can come out for a 6 p.m. show that finishes at 7:30 which then enables them to get out for dinner o'clock p.m. reservation to be done with dinner by 10 o'clock have a glass of wine and still be in home you know at home and get the trains before they they all go and, and and the city is different. Mm. You know, the trains are striking. We've got lots of considerable transport problems that everybody is like concerned about constantly. Our stamina is different. People are going out less late. This is not New York. It's not the city that never sleeps. It is very much a city that sleeps. Mm. And I think that as a result of that, as culture makers, as people who are ultimately working 
in the nighttime economy, we have to respond to the behavior of people now. So I agree with everything you're saying. And then sort of just to add on to that, that's something that I'm really thinking of. And so I really am applauding the National Theatre for trying a new model of responding to the nighttime economy and what people want out of their evenings. Um, And I think we all have to follow suit. I think we all have to just rip to shreds the status quo and and what we've all kind of accepted as law, that kickoff is at 7.30, the curtain's up at 7.30. Why? Absolutely. And broaden that. Ask yourself that question for everything that we do. And if you think of the work from home movement Mm. as well, which is still very much with us, the return to the office is not something that's happening on a perhaps the scale that some would like it. If you have worked at home till 5 or 5.30, you kind of like want to get out of the house by 6. And actually going to the theatre, going to see something, starting at 6 or 6.30 makes much more sense yeah. in that context. Because you kind of get that emotional or mental stimulation yeah. that you need that is quite separate from your work and it takes you away from home. Interestingly, when I was at Museum of the Home, one of the things we investigated and were looking at very much was that the, the way that home had become a place of labour working from home. Mm. And that led us down to kind of looking at, at, you know, particularly through the pandemic, the way that women's role changed and and, and domestic labour became something that was incredibly draining for a lot of women. Almost this kind of stepping back sort of 60 or 70 years in time to the 1950s, you know. And I think also there's something about the rise of Gen Z as well. And younger people tend not to drink as much as perhaps people of <coughs> my generation. <laughs> um, but we like our glasses of wine or beer or that kind of thing. They tend not to. They're much more comfortable sitting down with a green tea or a soft drink and playing a board game in the evening. Pubs are starting to get quite attuned to this and actually starting to kind of reconfigure the kinds of drinks that they sell and that kind of thing. Cafes are beginning to kind of accommodate for that and actually just have board games absolutely mm. everywhere and encourage people to to mix and mingle in that way. So there is a definite shift. And I think going back to what we were discussing earlier around values as well and some of the shifts and changes there, there's something really healthy, I think, about the way that Gen Z embrace values and respond so much to what's going on around them in the world. And climate change is an example of that, is, is, is probably the primary topic. But there's much else as well that I feel like I've lost my thread, but I think I know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I will get there, I promise. That those values present a real opportunity to also start to look at new work and embrace new work, because I think that's really, really vital. And in my mind, there's a clear and present danger that if theatres or museums looking at blockbuster exhibitions, you know, which mm-hmm. have a kind of a cachet with names like Naomi, for example, attached to them. That that's very easy in terms of getting audiences in. But where are the core ideas that really provoke discussion and conversation and engage with communities who perhaps for whom that that's mm. perhaps less relevant? I because think- Naomi is in so many ways such a symbol of consumption rather than of values per se. Absolutely. And I think that's that's also symptomatic, you know, when you when you look at what's happening on the fringe and sort mm. of within independent grassroots venues at the moment. You know, for the last two years, I've been listening to artistic director and cultural leaders talk about this idea that fringe, you know, fringe theatre is dead or small scale work is dead. And I call that out and I go, ha- go have a look at what the Glory are doing. Go have a look at what, you know, Angel Comedy Club are doing at the Bill Murray. Yeah. Go have a look at all of these incredibly small, tiny spaces who are selling out 
all the time with what they're doing. I think I think we are in a real uh, renaissance of grassroots work because people want to feel a kind of attachment to the community and they want to feel like they're a part of a space in a totally different way that I just don't think that a lot of studio theatres or in fact a lot of museums are really kind of, you know, harnessing. Mm. But what those grassroots spaces are doing is creating an environment that people want to be in and they are putting on work and interrogating what work and what grassroots work and what independent work and what intersectional formatically what intersectional work looks like and really doing stuff that is selling out a lot of the time because you know people are going to different sorts of work they are going to niche stuff they are going to very specific work that is to do with them and their identity and their culture and their community and their interest types Um, so it's not true that small-scale theatre or fringe theatre or grassroots-led art in general is dead. I think the way that we're creating it is changing. That mm. when we, we as organisations all do have to look at that and can't just be like that, you know, in, our, in, in this scenario, that blockbuster programming would be the 10-year revival, yeah. you know, of a play and putting that on at a pub theatre and expecting that to sell tickets. Yeah. I just don't think that that's where the, where the, where the culture of climate is going. No. Absolutely not. That grassroots scene is so important and vibrant, not just to the arts in London, but to the arts across the UK. So I think it's fantastic to hear you saying how important that is. Because this coming year, if we look at the amount of blockbuster openings, there's a crazy number, and Sanjit touched on the Hollywood film adaptations, for example, that are coming into the West End. So what do you think those big adaptations and that big IP, what's the impact that that has on the grassroots scene? Wow. What a, yeah, what an interesting question. Do you know what? I think that it really changes. I I talk to a lot of playwrights around the concept of new writing at the moment, actually. I think that's what's really, I'm struggling as both a producer, you know, with Metal Rabbit, who primarily produces new work with new, with debut playwrights, as well as The King's Head has obviously had a very long history of producing new writing. And it's really difficult now to simultaneously encourage writers to figure out how to become creative entrepreneurs and take ownership of their own work and at the same time be really, really blunt and really honest with them about the commercial viability of that work because it is true that to write a new story as a playwright right now, a brand new piece of writing that isn't a book adaptation and it's not based on an old play or a homage to this or whatever, is very difficult to justify production for at the moment because the funding's not there, the the cultural appetite isn't there. And so they're all thinking, they're stifling their own creativity by going, how do I write one to two handers, which is also in some way either a very on the nose political discussion that I think is going to be ahead of the zeitgeist and or a book adaptation. And I just think that the trickle on effect of creativity that the writers themselves are experiencing is significant in terms of that specific question and the way that therefore writers and artists who are working at the grassroots and are working at the new work level are responding to what is going on in the commercial sector in the big blockbuster kind of moments. And you touched there on something about the formats as well and the spaces, you know, because there is this pressure for selling, theatres have to survive, right? Talawa have done something really interesting, like to declare an interest, I did used to work with Talawa um, um, for quite quite a few years, but they've done something really interesting with Talawa stories, and I'm thinking particularly of Baby Dyke, which ran yesterday on uh, Radio 4, which premieres on radio first, 
rather than in the theatre, which I think is really mm. interesting as a model, and encouraging writers to develop work that, that, that performs in a completely different space and is then reimagined for the stage down the line, in a way having proved its chops in a completely different space. Yeah. To be viable, yeah. to say, well, look, nearly yeah. a million people heard this, therefore there is a ready-made market to now see it on stage. And I think a lot of... Um, theatre companies, particularly those dedicated to new work, are starting to explore very different ways of presenting work, sometimes perhaps premiering it as a short film and then spinning off a play from that. And in a way, that's almost kind of mimicking The Devil Wears Prada, for example, that model of kind of like going, here's a film first and then, or a book or whatever that's made into a film, and then it becomes a musical or a play. I don't know, that's just a really interesting trend that I'm also seeing. I just thought it was it's worth It's really kind of interesting you bring, bring up that relationship between, yeah, yeah the, the sort of radio foreplay of the yeah. day um, model and theatre now, because I completely agree with you. Before the pandemic, I had no correlation with the radio world at all. And then during the pandemic, sort of got more and more more involved with radio play production and now this year wound up theatre we took up a play that was commissioned for radio Four play of the day and then took it up to the edinburgh fringe now wound up theatre you know is is one of my my sort of outfits that i run with two other people we produce work primarily by one playwright we don't have funding we're not a commercial outfit we're a group effectively a group of friends who like to make work together now of course i've got other companies with with other levels of funding but that particular organization it's always just really at the true essence of the fringe, right? We're literally just taking up our sort of suitcases and the money in our savings account and throwing caution to the wind and giving it a go. Mm -hmm. And what the amazing thing about that was is that theatre does not have the ability to be able to commission playwrights in the same way. But what we did with that is obviously Matt Greenoff got the commission from Radio 4, from the BBC. He got paid for his work. He got paid to write the script and in a way that we would not have been able to pay him any other way for us to then do a very small amount of work to adapt it for stage to then take it up to, to Edinburgh. And that is a, a totally new pathway for a piece of work that I did not know existed before the pandemic. And I don't think many people did. And we're doing it the other way as well. You know, I've got a lot of playwrights. Mediocre White Male was a play that I produced at the Fringe a couple of years ago. And then we had at King's Love Head the Theatre. And yeah, it was great. And then, you know, and then that got picked up by BBC Radio 4. So again, these are two guys who wrote their play, did not get paid for their work because they were doing it via the Edinburgh Fringe structure. And then eventually down the line managed to get picked up and, and adapted for radio by BBC and that really kind of helped pay for their commission and I do think those relations and looking towards cross-medium formats and where the money exists outside of the sector is necessary within the funding climate at mm. the moment so yeah it's really interesting you said that. So it feels there like we're sort of touching on two things. A, looking at different journeys to make work. So whether that's radio to stage or finding new avenues, but also looking at different funding models to find to make yeah. works, which is obviously funding is an ongoing huge issue in the arts. But that's fascinating what you're saying about using that radio model first enabled the playwright to actually be paid. So not only was it a different journey and a different progression, but it enabled the money to actually be there from the beginning. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think also cast sizes are another really interesting one. You know, new writers can't really write for a five plus hander on stage off the back. You know, if you don't have chops and if you're not already in 
with one of the bigger institutions. Now, I think David Byrne taking over the Royal Court is a new dawn and it will be very interesting to see what they do there. But the court hasn't exactly been a place where, the, you know, you can write an eight-hander and as a debut playwright, mm. off, you, know, you know, as your first play. You have to cut your teeth by writing small-scale work to get those chops to do that. Whereas radio, those limitations are taken off you in a such a different way. So I think there's a lot of writers that get to flex their muscles and learn their craft in a totally different way through the radio routes to then have it transposed to stage, which is, I think, really exciting for them. Yeah. No, it is. It is. Absolutely. So I'd love to chat to you both as well about audiences because we're talking yes. a lot at the moment about Ooh, artists. Yes, we are. <laughs> but you've both done lots of work with audience development and audience outreach and trying to get both new and more diverse audiences into your spaces and with the companies you work with. So do you think there is still more work to be done by organisations in this industry? Sophie is nodding furiously. <laughs> um, I don't think we'll ever be done, right? I think that's the point is that you can't ever stop striving to be better with your relationship with your community, whatever that means. I do think this goes back to the first conversation we were having around the first question, which is about community inclusion and the way that post-pandemic, the cultural climate has changed its relationship from being kind of expecting its audiences to be voyeuristic to now being much more participatory and a part of that. And I think what we have adopted at the King's Head recent, like now, is, is really kind of being a space for a community. That community is predominantly the LGBTQ plus community. We create work by, with, for that community. And that artistically frees us up to do whatever we want to do because we're now creating an entire venue that is actually community focused first not in the sense of like being a community theatre that is a very different type of making work we're making professional work but we're putting audiences at the core of the artistic policy first in a way that isn't really explored through the artistic director or the hierarchical traditional models of of running a building and I think that in itself is one way that you know you can flip that model and start looking at different ways to respond where art and audiences can overlap and we need to respond differently to that. Very much so. When I was at Museum of the Home, one of the things we looked at was using the power of the local to kind of grow and become a national museum, essentially. And for us, it began very much by looking at who were the people living in Hoxton around the museum. We were conscious, I think, when the museum reopened that some people might see it as an agent of gentrification. Really interesting. As with every redevelopment. Mm. And I think, you know, with, with King's Head having recently reopened as well, that tension may arise, um, if not immediately. But I think your response to it has been fantastic. And it's absolutely the right response, which is to embrace community very meaningfully and to, to have that trust. And that was a journey that we at the museum needed to embark upon. And I'm really pleased to say in, in my time there that that's exactly what we achieved. And from that, we were able to then open up conversations with spaces like the Glory, which you touched upon mm. earlier. And that led to developing a whole year-long programme of queer-focused um, work and engagement. Everything from things like the Curiosities Selling Fairs, where queer artists and makers got together and sold stuff, basically, be they zines or ceramics or, you know, homewares, the whole lot, right through to On Railton Road, a theatre production you know, written a verbatim piece, essentially, pulled together by Louis Remges, brilliant writer, and executed and directed brilliantly by the cast and Ian Giles, who was the, the director-producer on that. We co-produced the play, and it was a first for us, 
museums don't normally、mm. do theatre, but it was a really interesting way of engaging with the community who saw the glory as their home, and suddenly realising that this museum about five minutes walk down the road. Could also be their home, and the subject of the play, which was all about squatting and and and, and squatters living on on Railton Road in the late seventies, had a clear resonance for them, but also for us、um, as a museum. Squatting was a story we'd never actually explored before, and actually, why not? I mean, if that、we、isn't a story home, about、yeah. making home, I don't know what is, you know. And also that sense of particularly in those days of queer people、um, beginning to embark on that journey of the chosen family, people that you. You hang out with the people that you want to hang out, rather than the people that, the family that you were born into. Quite often, because people were escaping abusive situations in families,、um, so the chosen family was much, much more important. And in, in and of itself, through time, certainly by the mid eighties and the, the late eighties, you know, fighting Section Twenty Eight, campaigning for better care for people with HIV and so on and so forth,、um, that all came from those sorts of movements. And interestingly. Running with this one, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. Stick with me. The activism of the past, in a way, is linking to the activism of today, and possibly showing a pathway for what the future of activism could look like as well, which I think perhaps has been quite sustaining, particularly for younger people, to suddenly realise that the way they think and the way they feel and the values that they hold dear. Aren't actually that separate to perhaps the values the older generation also held, and that perhaps there's something in 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 the experience of those older people that they could learn from or develop further. That harking back across generations is really important, and I think again, going back essentially to your first question, you know, museums, theatres, cultural spaces can be those bridge builders、mm. in that way, and be part of the healing, if you like, of society and part of the next steps that society can take. And I think that's that's actually that multi generational focus and connection is actually re- a really good example of why cultural spaces who are looking at kind of a community first rather than an art form first can be a sort of way forward can create those conversations. I think one of the things that we're one of the conversations we've been having in theatre for decades, right, is the aging audience of theatre. Right, is how do we get young people back?、Uh, how do we get young people to do that? And I think the answer isn't by Forcing young people to engage formatically in the way that we've always done things—it is to meet young people on that level, to find a co-creative space, to create a co-voyeuristic space as well. I'm not—I'm not just like advocating for community and divisive work. I think there is space, place in the world for both, but to have a space where intergenerationally we are interrogating the ways that we make art, to look at look at those two things and and figuring out what. Brings the generations together rather than what excludes them and keeps them apart, which is, I think, what theatre has done and a lot of cultural institutions have done for a very long time by being overtly formatically focused or art art focused. It's so interesting, though, and Sanjit, you just said that that we've gone back to the question that we started with about arts for change. So, and how important that is with what you just said about arts for activism or the subject matter, for example, of On Railton Road, and it comes back to that power of the arts, doesn't it? Which is Vital this year, I think. 
Now, it feels like we've touched on the King's Head reopening a few times <laughs> and moving into your incredible new space. So I just think we should dwell on that for a moment. So you obviously just opened your doors for first previews. But for people who have not been down to see you yet, can you tell us a bit about the new space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's crazy exciting. I think firstly, the big shock to the system for everybody is going to be that, you know, the new King's Head isn't the sort of pub theatre of our, our history. It's not pub theatre 2.0. It's very much a, you know, mid-scale 200-seat flexible theatre auditorium with a 50-seat cabaret venue. So we're very excited with what we're, you know, the doors are open now, what we can do now for the future and where we're going to go. This is the first step, really. It might be the one of the last steps of the capital project, but it's the first step of the new theatre's journey. Um, I think it's really important for us to figure out how to honour the 53 years of the pub theatre history. And I think one of the big conversations for us is how we bridge the gap between the sort of the, the fringe and the mid-scale because we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the King's Head was really a space where I think most people, <laughs> most artists and sort of most artists in the sector kind of have cut their teeth at one point or another, really. And it has been kind of genuinely a footnote on most people's, you know, most artists' CVs, theatrical artists' CVs at some point. So we don't want to lose sight of that. We don't want to lose sight of what that means. But it is a different scale. And with that comes new pressures and new challenges, but also really exciting opportunities. So we're very excited to be here. At the moment, the main auditorium is open. Um, in a few months' time, we'll really get the cabaret space up and running and that will be our space that to have a lot of fun with and to do everything that we just spoke about in terms of you know connecting with communities and artists and the grassroots and sort of small scale level be innovative and, and sort of formatically creative and really interrogate what theatre means that isn't just sort of a play or a musical so that's sort of our space to have fun with in that sense lots and lots and lots of new opportunities to come in the new space so please do come down and see the opening show or just come and check out the space because it's not the pub theatre it's a totally new five-story mid-scale venue you sold it to me, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, we'll be I'm doing there. both. Sandra and I are on our way. <laughs> yeah, please do. So we've spoken quite a lot about change that we're going to see this year. New venue, changes in audience, huge blockbusters. So a tricky one for you both to round off our chat. If you had a magic wand and probably a money tree, what change would you like to see in the arts this year? That's, wow. Yeah. So many. I really would love to see us all kind of getting back to stopping the infighting again, really. I think there was something, oh my, you know, Chloe, we worked, we worked on it together. You know, all the webs of stage. At the start of the pandemic, there was a real put down the swords moment for everybody in the sector. And I, it kills me that we seem to have gone back to that. I think we've got a skill shortage um, in the sector right now. A lot of people have left as, as a result of that. So there is a skill shortage in the sector. Sector. There's a sort of change of value system. The pressure on producers to both create work, to find funding in a difficult funding climate, but also to kind of have all of this additional like welfare stuff, but not actually like interrogating the relationship that they've got with their artists, the infrastructure that they have themselves, I think is startling. You know, everybody is just throwing swords again at institutions, at, uh, you know, at directors, whether or not you're in-house, whether or not you're an independent producer, you know, everybody's back at war. And that really hurts me because I think that we really did get to a point early in the pandemic where everyone said it's not all your fault it's up to us collectively to work together to find a new solution um, and we did that for a bit yeah there was an amazing <laughs> collaborative feel wasn't yeah. there with yeah. everyone coming together yeah. and it feels like that may have slightly 
gone awry. Gone awry. And it, yeah. it showed it could be done. Museums went through a similar experience to theatre. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting more recently has been exactly that, that drive to a more competitive or self-interested model, for want of a better term. For me, I think echoing exactly what you said, I think I'd, I'd love much more of a kind of collective and collaborative approach to working. But breaking that down in some sense, I think also what I would really love is for the larger productions and commercial theatres to understand that this whole pipeline of talent that they rely on comes from somewhere. It comes from fringe venues. It comes from drama schools and colleges and universities. It comes from technicians who need to be trained somewhere. So what in my mind, what are we doing to address those fundamentals? How are we making sure that there are actors who aren't born with silver spoons in their mouths? You know, sorry, but not sorry. <laughs> you know, it's just like, come on, do you really have to be born with a trust fund yeah. to, be, to be on stage? Because it's starting to feel that way. Um, and then they go on to film and TV and we And we did, and and we else, did have that know? for a millisecond over the we pandemic did. as well. Ne- you know, there was the Netflix theatre fund, right? Yeah. Because all of a sudden the film and television sector of Britain, like, really, really fundamentally understood the talent pipeline, understood that great film and television talent in this country only comes from the theatre. It always has. And the intricate relationship between that. And so Netflix and other organisations, the BBC, threw their weight behind supporting theatre. But within that, we didn't have the larger institutions of theatre supporting the smaller ones. And that divide between the small and the large, or in fact, you know, what I will call institutions versus grassroots independent organisations became bigger. So Mm. I, you know, I completely agree with you. That was a beautiful moment in the pandemic to see us all collectively recognizing the talent feeder that that uh, you know and, and how that the sector works and how how britain is a world class in its you know artistic talent and what that means but we have lost sight of that again for yeah. sure definitely i think we need to think back at some of the positive things that we learned and try and act on them Definitely. So thank you both. Every chat on the Pink Podcast is going to finish with a section that we are calling Head First, which is a question that places importance on mental health in the arts. So perhaps we can be a bit nosy and you can both tell us in this frenetic industry, what are you currently doing for you? Now, this could be watching something, listening to something, exercise, whatever works for you. Sanjit, do you want to kick us off? will say that I was having a conversation with a writer called Catherine May who wrote a wonderful book called Wintering and we're in the throes of winter and January and February tend to be the coldest months and the bleakest months of the year and wintering I think as a practice is what's keeping me going and that means making sure that I get daylight, that I get walks, that I appreciate even though nature feels like it's hibernating, that it's still there and that I have some sort of connection with it. That really matters to me and I think it's it's, it's something that kind of sustains me. I love to cook as well. My husband laughs about this one all the time, but in the run-up to Christmas, I just order these enormous hampers of like, you know, sauces and mm. jars of treats and things. He's like, what the are you doing that for? And I'm like, well, because, you know, come January and February, I can start doing all the stuff. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. It's, it's just making these wonderful meals. So a country walk followed by a lovely meal, the practice of making it, all those sorts of things. It keeps me creative reading, sitting down and reading a book. Yeah, and Wintering is a fantastic book. It's a brilliant book. Yes. And it's a real guide to coping with those bleak times in one's life. Um, 
winter in this in this particular case but i think that's it for me definitely i think that's quite a good thing to do um, yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm going to read this book and uh, wintering in vitamin d tablets oh yes <laughs> vitamin d tablets for sure <laughs> that's what you need my answer is much simpler i'm going to i'm going to go with netball and but it's <laughs> chloe's like where are you going with this sophie i think it's i no no the core of that really comes with that when you spend your entire life, and I think in before the pandemic, I definitely was was guilty of this, and I think many of us are in the sector of making your entire identity your job, making you the, the one thing that you care about more than anything else, the thing you are most passionate about more than anything else is your art or your practice or your job, and then to acknowledge that sometimes a job is just a job. When we make our jobs our passion, we are still going to have bad days at work. We are still going to have mornings we don't want to get out of bed. We're still going to have sick days. And when you do that and then you make your entire identity it, I think it can be really difficult. And so I went on a kind of bit of a search just to find something else that I could put some energy into that wasn't my job, that I could have some fun with and be passionate about, that that every single night of the week wasn't drinking with theatre artists or making theatre or watching theatre. Mm. Um, and I found netball. So I play netball on, netball on a Monday. There we go. Fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. Well done. I'm not sure I'll take up netball, but I, I, I admire you for it. So thank you both so much. So thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Sanjit, for joining us today. And thank you very much for being a part of this conversation, which I think was fascinating. So please do follow us on the Pink Podcast One on all platforms. And then do join us for the next episode, which will be all about sustainability in the arts. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.